0: I'm Maggie Carini, President of the Friends of the Knox County Public Library. The Friends and the East Tennessee Historical Society welcome you to an evening with Elaine Weiss, author of The Women's Hour, The Great Fight to Win the Vote. We are a 47-year-old grassroots organization run by volunteers dedicated to fostering a love of libraries, books, and reading through community outreach, advocacy, and support of the library system and staff. Tonight's event is one example of how Friends fulfills its mission. I would like to introduce a woman who really needs no introduction to anyone here, a woman who works every day to make a difference in the lives of all Knoxvillians. More often than not, in her remarks, she reminds us about the importance of exercising this hard-won privilege to vote. And she usually especially encourages the women in the audience to run for office. As a living, breathing role model for many of us, she embodies the very reason we are here tonight. Madeline, we cannot thank you enough for the example you set and the way you lead with strength and action. Mayor Madeline Rojero.
1: Thank you so much, Maggie. That was certainly a wonderful introduction, and I appreciate it so much. I want to thank you. I want to thank all of the Friends of the Library uh, and the sponsors who were mentioned tonight for organizing this great event and for everything that you do for Knoxville. And thank you all for being here. It's really appropriate that you're having it today, because this is International Women's Day. I've got my purple on. Yeah. It is so appropriate that uh, we're here tonight to learn about the 70 years of struggle in this country for women to gain the right to vote. Uh, We join with women across the world in honoring the women who came before us and who are still working today to achieve equality and opportunity for all women and all people. So um, I am so very happy to be here tonight to introduce Elaine Wise. I'm reading the book right now, The Woman's Hour, and it could not be more timely. Even though this story happened nearly 100 years ago, all of us are still living through the aftermath and working to achieve its full promise. Women are voting, that's the good news. More women than men have voted in every American presidential election since 1964. I'm not so sure about local elections, but those votes have not yet translated into anything like equal representation and elected office. Women make up just under 20% of the members of the U.S. Congress. Just six out of 50 governors in the U.S. states are currently women. And we all know we're vastly underrepresented in our state legislature. And, of course, we have not yet elected a woman president, though we know she did receive almost (laughs) 2.9 million more popular votes than he did. (laughs) We got that pesky electoral college, So, but we, so we are seeing some changes. Here in Knoxville, uh, last year, women were elected to four of the five open seats on city council. Yeah. That means we quadrupled the number of women on council. <laughs> you got to claim it when you can. And here's something that's really interesting. So we had five open seats. In every district where women, a woman or women ran, a woman won, okay? Four districts of the five had women candidates and, women, uh, and a woman won in each of those. So uh, now we are seeing more and more women stepping forward, especially younger women wanting to be involved, wanting to run for office and support other women candidates. And I think our youngest young women here today are Rose and Zinnia, 12 and 8. Yeah, they're my friends. They come to see me in my office, and and, uh, we're so glad you're here. So for all the young women and men who are here, we'd certainly appreciate your interest and involvement. So, of course, long before we had the right to vote, women have been involved in our politics and our government. That is something that the Woman's Hour makes clear. One of the things that I enjoy about this book is the way it so vividly brings to life the stories of the many women who were crucial to the fight for the ballot. Here in Tennessee, we may be a little more aware than people in other states that Tennessee played the central and final role in the passage of the 19th Amendment. But I am still learning uh, so much from the book about the personalities, the strategies, the intrigue, it's a political thriller they say, right? (laughs) It's also worth noting some of the things that really impressed me, and I don't know if you'll touch on this or not, but the role of early suffragists in the abolition of slavery, which is really impressive, and likewise, the strong support of former slave and abolitionist leader Frederick Douglass. Uh, He was a very big supporter of women gaining the right to vote, and for year after year after year, he went to the women's conventions. I did not realize that. And of course, his famous quotes about slavery held true to the issue of women's right to vote. You may recall him saying, if there is no struggle, there is no progress. Power concedes nothing without a demand. It never did and never will. And that certainly is um, personified in this story. This book is a reminder of how much we owe the women and men, but especially the women who worked so hard for so many years to bring us voting equality. It is incumbent on all of us to keep that work alive, and this book is a great inspiration. So now it is my pleasure to introduce tonight's speaker. Elaine Weiss is an award-winning journalist and writer who has written for The Atlantic, Harper's, New York Times, Boston Globe, Philadelphia Inquirer, and the Christian Science Monitor. Her first book was called Fruits of Victory, The Woman's Land Army in the Great War. And this was featured in the Smithsonian Magazine online and on C-SPAN and public radio stations nationwide. So this book, Fruits of Victory, The Woman's Land Army in the Great War, is about the 20,000 urban women who went to rural America during World War I to do farm work while all the men went off to war. And they were concerned for food shortages. I've never read about that. So that's the next book I'm reading (laughs) after the Woman's Hour. There's so much of our history that we don't know, right, and that we're not taught, so thank you, Elaine. Elaine holds a graduate degree from the Medill School of Journalism of Northwestern University. She has worked as a Washington correspondent, congressional aide and speechwriter, magazine editor, and university journalism instructor. Elaine lives in Baltimore, Maryland, with her husband, another enlightened man. Where did he go? Julian Krolick. He's a professor of astrophysics at Johns Hopkins University, and they have two grown children. And we have something in common I learned in, in, in uh, looking at your bio. We both enjoy kayaking, and I'm told that when not working at her desk, Elaine can be found paddling her kayak on the Chesapeake Bay. And maybe most importantly, she votes in every single election. <laughs> Please welcome Elaine Weiss.
2: Thank you so much. I'm really so thrilled to be here and so thrilled to see all of you. Uh, this is a very special few days. This is the launch of my book, um, and it's so extra special to launch it in Tennessee, the home of the book. Um, so this, this means a, a great deal to me. Um, and also, Especially to be in East Tennessee and in Knoxville, which plays such a role in the story that I tell in The Woman's Hour. Mm-hmm. This is your story. This is your heritage. This is your legacy. And I know how proud you are of it because not only do you memorialize it in Market Square in this wonderful sculpture, which, which I have visited now, but you also and I want to thank you, this is a bit of a love letter to the library because you have preserved the documents and the photographs. The Lizzie uh, Crozier French suffrage scrapbook was so important to me in my research as were the Harry Byrne papers. I can't tell you enough of what it means for researchers and writers like me but also for ordinary citizens to be able to really see the documents. And I mean, not just a transcription, but to see a photograph. I could be sitting at my desk in Baltimore, and I could bring up Feb Burns' letter on my computer. And that was really important and really special. I know it's painstaking. I know it's expensive. And I just want to tell you how important it is. So with- So I wanted to tell your story, the story of Tennessee, the War of the Roses, but I wanted to tell it in perhaps a different way than it's been told before. I wanted to tell it in greater detail, uh, really drilling down on details and characters and um, the the kind of world they were, the suffragists and. The legislature was living in at the time in 1920. But I also wanted to put it in a broader context. I wanted to show what was going on, what political forces and historical forces were weighing on Tennessee's decision, sort of the micro and the macro, to do it in, in that Uh, way, but also to tell a story. It's a narrative. I hope it's one that's very readable. I didn't want it to be a ponderous history. I wanted it to be a story, and that's how I wrote it. So by focusing my lens on just the six weeks of that furious fight in Nashville over ratification in the summer of 1920, I could do that. I could pull the camera back to show what those pressures are, and I could also extend the depth of field to show what these women had gone through, what these suffragists had gone through in the 72 years previous to this climax of the movement. And so by focusing it narrowly, but then pulling back the camera, I could achieve something that I hoped would be a, a much broader view of what this story is about. When I came to um, conduct the first stage of research, I specifically came in mid-August. I wanted to feel the heat. <laughs> because the heat becomes a sort of silent character in the book. Everybody talks about how hot it is. It happens to be a heat wave uh, for part of the time. There are no air conditioners, of course. And so I did feel it, how it kind of improved bears down upon you, how it engulfs you. Um, It was sort of like method acting for historians. I I could really feel it and I could explain it better. I spent many hours in the State Library and Archives, another great resource for historians. It's a treasure trove of letters and clippings and scribbled pieces of paper that chronicle the fight that happened in Nashville during those weeks. I also took in the suffrage objects that are in the State Museum, the History Museum in Nashville, and that was useful. I explored Union Station, which becomes uh, an important locale in the book, and you'll find out why. I walked the corridors of the State House, uh, and I sat in the Senate and the House chambers where so much of the action takes place. I climbed and I counted the steps up to the House Visitors Gallery, where the suffragists and the anti-suffragists spend so many anxious hours. And the answer is, there are 30 steps, and they're very narrow, and I can't imagine what it was like to go up and down in long skirts. Um, So I began to understand what, what was going on. I toured the Hermitage Hotel, uh, which was called the third house of the legislature because so much of the action uh, took place there. Both the suffragists and the anti-suffragists were staying in the hotel. So the lobby was quite the battlefield. And I got to see the room on the third floor where Carrie Kat spent six weeks being a sort of house prisoner. She wasn't allowed out. And um, when I saw this view where her room would have been and how she looked out onto the Capitol, it really gave me goosebumps because I realized this is what she looked at every day and worried every day for those six long weeks. So I went home. I did a ton more research. I used the Library of Congress. I used the Schlesinger Library at Harvard on the Uh, for the History of Women, which is a wonderful resource. I used the McClung Historical Collection at Knoxville Library. I put together the pieces of the story. I learned to decipher impossible penmanship, which is a really important skill, uh, but it was worth it because through the the digitization of, of the documents in the McClung, I could see the handwritten, documents, and they were very revealing. The underlines, the scribbles, the cross-out, the capitalizations, the punctuation. It tells you about the character of the person who's writing. And so that becomes part of my research. It becomes part of what I can tell about these characters. So then I begin telling the story, and you know the gist of it. It's the summer of 1920, Just one more state is needed to ratify the 19th Amendment, and every woman in every state in every election will be able to vote for the first time. 35 states have ratified. Tennessee could be the 36th. There's this wonderful cartoon of uh, Uncle Sam buttoning up his wife, and she says, "Uh, It's that last button, Sam. (laughs) The enfranchisement of half of the citizens of the United States is at stake, and it all comes down to Tennessee. Of course, Tennessee was not really pleased about being put in this uncomfortable position. The governor didn't want it. He was up for re-election. The legislature didn't want to handle such a controversial issue. They were also up for re-election. Even the suffragists were not sure this was a good place to stage this decisive battle because almost all the other southern states had already rejected the 19th Amendment. They were not at all sure that this was going to work, but they had no choice. This was their last best hope, because by 1920, the suffragists had been fighting for 72 years. Three generations of fearless activists had been working. They dedicated their lives since That first outrageous demand for the vote was made at Seneca Falls in 1848. It was made by Elizabeth Cady Stanton and seconded by Frederick Douglass. That was, again, something that I didn't know. Frederick Douglass was at Seneca Falls. He's the one who gives her the support. The other women are not so sure this is a good idea. And Susan Anthony hasn't joined the movement yet. It's Frederick Douglass who gives her that support. And he calls himself a woman's rights man. For all of his life and he truly is one of their best friends. So they had traveled by this time, um, they have traveled hundreds of thousands of miles to as Susan Anthony calls it, organize, educate, and agitate. And they've done this in tiny towns and big cities in Knoxville, in Nashville, in Chattanooga for now into the third generation. They had to change hearts and minds before they could change laws. And that's something for us to remember, that it does, it's, can't be done in an instant. It takes a lot of preparing the ground. It was really a stupendous uh, feat of organization, because they didn't have the kind of either communication or even transportation tools that we take for granted. When you think of it, when the movement begins, passenger train travel is in its infancy. There isn't even a transcontinental railroad. The telegraph has just been invented. There's no telephone. There's no typewriter. They have to do with what they've got. And as one young woman said to me when she was uh, in my publishing house, she said, I don't understand how these women organized all these rallies and marches and and campaigns without Facebook. (laughs) (laughs) But they did. They held meetings all over the country. Uh, There's wonderful stories. I'm going by buckboard and by hand carts on on the railroad lines. They held meetings and rallies. They marched, which was not considered proper for women to do. And they were pelted with vegetables for doing it. They were in every part of the country. They held rallies and meetings they didn't wear pussy hats but they did wear their marching uniforms white dresses with yellow sashes so when you see the democratic women's caucus wearing white to the state of the union last year it's an homage to the suffragists now they'd also had to go to extremes at this point they have picketed the white house they have burned the president in effigy hundreds have been arrested And they've been served time in prison, and they have been tortured and force-fed for their civil disobedience. Of course, it's perfectly legal to picket, but it had never been done before. So they're actually arrested for trumped-up charges, like obstructing the sidewalk. Um, They have endured contempt and ridicule in their communities, in their churches, and in the press. And I think anyone who who looks at the history of suffrage realizes what these women had to go through. They've been denounced as radicals, perverts, traitors, anarchists, bad wives and mothers, and even Bolsheviks. Clearly, many men and even some women were frightened by them. It's hard for us to imagine how brave a woman had to be to stand up and call herself a suffragist and fight for political equality, especially in the South. And I have such admiration for the Southern suffragists, because here there were strict social codes. And of course, there's that tradition of the pedestal that made it harder, made it much harder for women to declare themselves suffragists. And yet they do. Despite all this, they do stand up. They organized. They marched. They lobbied. They petitioned they campaigned, they fundraise for the cause, they become activists, they become politicians and they learn how to, pull the levers of power. And these were ordinary women. These were school teachers and housewives and factory workers and farm wives, and they learned to be activists. Tennessee suffragists were led by very strong women, women like your own Lizzie Crozier French, founder of the Knoxville Equal Suffrage Society. Uh, She's the Tennessee State Suffrage Association president. She's active at the national level too, and she's amazing because she also joins the National Women's Party which is the more radical wing of the of the party. She's quite a fascinating woman, and on her voter registration card she listed as her occupation suffragist. (laughs) There's also Abby Crawford Milton of Chattanooga, who's the first president of the Tennessee League of Women Voters. And, of course, Elizabeth Merriweather, who is on your wonderful statue in Market Square from Memphis, who's a suffrage pioneer. And then there are others who we don't hear as much about, but I found fascinating. Frankie, do you know Frankie Pierce, who so adroitly and bravely organizes the black women of Nashville to demand the vote and works with the white suffragists to get an agenda passed in the state legislature. And then there's Nashville's Ann Dallas Dudley, who is also on your uh, monument, who made suffrage respectable for prominent women in society. Uh, Before that it was kind of frowned upon and she serves not only on the state level but on the national association board and she becomes the suffragists' best defense against claims that the suffragists were unsexed masculine she-men out to destroy the American home and these are all what they're called the suffragists of Tennessee are able to counter this with and Alice Dudley and her maternal bliss with her children to prove that suffragists are mothers too. And that's actually very effective. Despite Tennessee's best efforts to duck in the summer of 1920, this 19th Amendment does arrive here in Nashville. It had been, uh, of course, uh, stymied in Congress for 42 years. It was actually introduced into the Congress in 1878. And it had been kept in committee and in the drawer and on the floor for 42 years. It finally has come out in summer of 1919. And now the suffragists have been working for the ratification. They've got 35. They need one more. And so all the forces aligned for and against suffrage, all the arguments that have ever been made for and against gather in Nashville for an explosive last stand. The stakes are very high for all sides. The campaign generals arrive. Carrie Chapman Catt, who is the president of the National American Women's Suffrage Association. She is uh, the anointed heir to Susan B. Anthony. Susan B. Anthony takes her as a protege, and she trains her, and she grooms her for leadership. She is the president of an army of an estimated two million members of the National Association. She's known as the Chief. She's a, a very adroit politician and strategist. She comes from New York. She's reluctant to come. She's afraid of what might happen, but she knows she has to lead her troops into battle. And her chief lieutenant here during the Nashville fight is Abby Crawford Milton. Then there's young Sue Shelton White from Henderson, Tennessee, in the western part of the state, who returns home to lead the suffragists' campaign for the National Women's Party, which is the more uh, aggressive wing of the party. And she comes home, and she has to face the women who groomed her in the movement, and she's broken away and uh, joined this more radical movement. So there's interesting psychological and emotional uh, moments for her, and she's trying to prove that her state can come through for justice and that she can become a leader. She's only 32 years old at this time. And then there's Josephine Anderson Pearson who's the leader of the Tennessee anti-suffragists. She comes um, from Monteagle, her home, to defend her home from what she called the feminist peril. She has promised her dying mother that she would defend Tennessee if women's suffrage ever came to be decided here. And she comes to fight against women's suffrage. They are joined by more than a thousand men and women who pour into Nashville and across the state around the country. There are suffragists, anti-suffragists, governors and senators, corporate lobbyists, journalists, nervous legislators. They're all entering the fray. There were powerful forces working against ratification in Tennessee. We sort of think it came here and then it happened and it got passed. That's really not how it happened. There are political, corporate, and ideological foes, each for their own reasons, for opposing the amendment. There are politicians who feared an unpredictable new voting bloc. How are these women going to vote? They didn't know. There were clergymen who believed that women voting went against the will of God. Because God made Adam to be dominant over Eve, and so women voting or entering uh, the political sphere was really against biblical teaching, and there are clergymen who organize against suffrage for that reason. There are corporations who believe that women voters will be bad for their business, and these include the railroads, who are very strong in Tennessee, especially in Nashville. They play a big part working against suffrage. The textile manufacturers, who would have thought the textile manufacturers would be so against suffrage. But they fear that women will want to abolish child labor. And they depend on child labor as cheap labor. And so they don't want women voting. And then the, the liquor industry. Uh, even though Tennessee's been dry for more than 10 years before 1920, it's been, what shall we say, lightly enforced. <laughs> Never hard to get a good drink. But they fear that women voters would insist on more strict enforcement of the new prohibition laws, which have just gone into effect earlier that year. And so they don't want women voting because they think they will want to enforce prohibition. So the liquor lobby Uh, sponsors a speakeasy on the eighth floor. Remember, (laughs) Prohibition is in effect. Um, On the eighth floor of the Hermitage Hotel, which comes to be known as the Jack Daniels Suite, (laughs) where liquor is dispensed morning, noon, and night uh, to any legislator who can toggle up there. And um, they're encouraged to vote against ratification as long as they can stand up. And there are great descriptions of drunks wandering the halls of the Hermitage singing, keep the home fires burning, and also uh, being sobered up under cold showers and fans to get to the, the chamber to vote. But the most passionate foes of the 19th Amendment turned out to be women. That women would oppose their own sexes enfranchisement was a shock to me. I did not understand the depth of the opposition. Many were social and religious conservatives who believed that suffrage would bring about a profound and unhealthy shift in gender roles uh, and bring about, as they called it, a moral collapse of the nation. It would alter private life, not just political life. And here's one of the taglines is, a vote for federal suffrage is a vote for organized female nagging forever." (laughs) Sounds good to me. (laughs) And so this is an important reminder that the debate over women's suffrage was not just a political debate. It was never that simple. It was really also a social and cultural and for some a moral debate over the proper role of women in society. And so in that way, It's a precursor to what we now call the culture wars. It evoked great passion on both sides. So they're all in Nashville and it gets wild. The suffs wear yellow roses as their emblem for ratification. The anti-suffragists wear red roses. That's why it's called War of the Roses. Abby Crawford Milton tours the state with Carrie Catt holding rallies and meetings with local suffrage leaders. And in every locale, they ask the suffrage leaders the same question. How many of the legislators in your district are susceptible to being bribed? And she said, first there'd be this silence and then they'd all rush and a, a torrent of names would be, would be named and they'd keep lists. And they kept a secret a sort of off the books of which legislators could be trusted and which one were susceptible to bribes. They had to do this sort of thing. There was a newspaper war over ratification. Abby Milton's husband owned the Chattanooga News, and he is for suffrage, but the Chattanooga Times is against it because it's owned by the Ox family, which also owns the New York Times. Both of those papers are stalwart against suffrage. In Nashville, the Tennessean throws its weight towards ratification, but the Nashville banner is against it. Uh, think of MSNBC and Fox News. You know, that's what you had in almost every city. In Nashville, once the action starts, once the legislators come in and the debates begin, there's bribes and booze and propaganda and blackmail and kidnappings and fistfights. There's betrayal and there's courage. And the newspapers call it the suffrage Armageddon. The outcome remains in doubt until the very last moment. I'm not going to spoil it for you. <laughs> but, but on the night before the decisive vote, the suffragists are in despair. And Mrs. Catt, who is not a religious woman, turns to Abby Crawford, who is, and says, there's one last thing we can do. We can pray. And you know that she is really desperate. <laughs> Yes, the outcome does involve a young man named Harry from Nyota and his mother, Feb, but it's really a much more complex story than that. And I wanted to explore the circumstances of Harry's vote more deeply than just, yeah, he voted. I wanted to see why he was wavering and what was at stake for him. And there was a lot at stake. By reading Abby Milton's accounts, which have been published, I could get some clues. Reading the daily editions of all the Tennessee newspapers gave me a better idea. And at the Library of Congress, I found the daily reports from the suffrage field officers who were here in East Tennessee and canvassing and trying to find Harry and pin him down. And I got the sense of why he was so conflicted. East Tennessee, of course, as you know, is Republican territory in a mostly Democratic state. But the Republicans were split on suffrage and on ratification. And they were frustrated by the flip-flopping of their presidential candidate. And he provided no leadership on the question. Harry Byrne was also the protege of a very prominent lawyer from Athens named Herschel Candler. Candler is his mentor. He's reading law under Cantor, and he's very afraid of crossing him and voting for suffrage when his mentor is so much against it. And Burns' constituents in Iota are not very supportive of suffrage for the most part. And this is where the McClung and the library collection became so valuable to me, because I could see those telegrams from the constituents to Harry, and I could see the threats to his reelection and to his political future. And I could also see the telegrams pouring in from outside organizations, from the White House, from uh, the presidential candidates. And this really enriched my idea of why this is such a difficult decision for him. And then, of course, I read Feb Byrne's fateful letter, all seven or eight pages of it. And it's very much a mother's letter to her son. It's not just be a good boy and and help Mrs. Cat put the rat in ratification, but it's filled with family news and neighborhood gossip and talk about the weather and a shopping list. (laughs) She instructs Harry to buy some sheet music for her in Nashville. And even the wonderful envelope that's been saved and is part of the collection gave me great clues because, you see, it's just addressed to Honorable H.T. Byrne, Nashville, Tennessee, state capitol. That's it. So I actually called the legislative historian and said, how would this get delivered to him? How would they find him? And so he told me. And I was able to put that description of how he gets the letter in the book. And after Harry cast this decisive vote, there's material in the state archives and the the collection to allow me to better understand the consequences. Because the consequences are not usually talked about. We usually talk about he, he votes. And uh, the ratification goes through. It's far more complicated and far more ugly than we're led to believe. For instance, the anti-suffragists are so incensed by Harry's vote, we know that they kind of chase him out the window. But what we don't usually know is that they try to smear him by accusing him of taking a bribe. And he has to take to the, the well of the House chamber and defend his honor and say, no, I did not take a bribe. They send a representative of the Southern Women's Rejection League to the farm in Iota, and they confront Feb Byrne on her porch steps. And here's her description. She writes this letter. This is Feb Byrne writing to Abby Crawford, uh, who's still in Nashville. And she writes this telegram. Woman was here today, claims to be wife of governor of Louisiana. And she was the wife and tried by every means to get me to refute and say that the letter I sent to my son was false. The letter is authentic and was written by me. I stand squarely behind suffrage and request my son to stick to suffrage until the end. This woman was very insulting to me and I had a hard time to get her out of my home." And she kicks her off the porch. And that I could only find that if I was able to see those documents I could not know that that's not in any history book uh, I had to see those documents and in the days after the vote another thing we don't realize is the Antis organize indignation rallies and the first one uh, it's actually in Athens denouncing Harry Byrne and they supposedly collect 700 signatures to demand that he retract his vote to ratify They have uh, meetings to save the South. These go on all over the state, and they're very ugly. There's torches, there's violent talk. It gets extremely ugly. The anti-suffrage legislators also go out on the lam. They actually leave in the middle of the night and go off to Alabama to avoid making a quorum to, to sort of certify the vote. There's all kinds of parliamentary maneuvering. And a few weeks later, and here's something, this is going to break your heart a little bit, even after the 19th Amendment has been certified, it has entered the uh, Constitution of the U.S., the Tennessee legislature actually votes to rescind its ratification. It's not going to count. It's the law of the land. But symbolically, the anti-suffragists are strong enough that they maneuver that vote through. And that is on the record. Harry is the uh, citizens of Nyota do reelect him to be their representative in the election. The governor is not that fortunate. <laughs> All this took place almost a century ago. But I think you'll find The Woman's Hour is a book of history with surprisingly modern themes, perhaps even unnervingly modern themes, voting rights and voting suppression, women's rights, inequality, dark money in politics, the role of religion in public policy, and racism, because the history of suffrage in America is inevitably about race. It comes out of the abolition movement, and race becomes a dominant theme in the fight in Nashville. In Nashville, there are cries of white supremacy and states' rights. The Ku Klux Klan is invoked as a dog whistle and the Confederate flag is waved in defiance. And we've certainly been hearing echoes of all this pretty recently. And oh, did I mention, the story unfolds in the middle of a bitter presidential election of 1920 uh, where the campaign slogan for the Republican candidate, who is a notorious womanizer, (laughs) and is being blackmailed by his mistress, And has paid hush money to keep her silent. <laughs> I, I don't write fiction. His campaign slogan is America First. <laughs> Warren G. Harding, who is elected president. <laughs> I submitted the manuscript for this book after working on it for over three years. On the day before election day, 2016, Yeah, I pushed that send button, you know, you don't deliver the manuscript anymore, you push a send button, and it flew through the ether to the uh, desks of my editor and my agent in New York City, and they wrote back immediately and said, hurrah, what great timing. (laughs) And uh, we thought that. (laughs) Well, it actually was more timely than we could have ever imagined. By the next evening, as you know, the national landscape had changed. And in the months since then, the psyche of the nation has really changed. And the story I wrote about the suffragists' long fight for democracy, and this is a book about democracy, and the final battle in Nashville has taken on layers of meaning I could not have anticipated at the time. This is a story of ordinary women, grassroots activists, taking to the streets and demanding change And this assumes a whole new meaning as we see millions of women and men join in marches of protest today. And this tale that I tell of women standing up and demanding their voices be heard and that their complaints be taken seriously echoes loudly as women rise to insist me too and time's up. And this history of citizens fighting for their rights enters a new dimension as rights that we considered secure. Voting rights, citizenship rights, press freedom, women's rights are really endangered once again. On election day 2016, an amazing thing happened. Not that amazing thing. Um, Thousands of women cast their vote and then made a pilgrimage to the cemeteries of the suffragists who won that vote for them. In New York City, they placed flowers and thank you notes and their I voted stickers on the graves of Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Carrie Chapman Catt in New York. Alice Paul's grave was decorated in New Jersey. And in Rochester, New York, more than 10,000 people, men and women, and I've seen videos of this, visited the grave of Susan B. Anthony to thank her. In Nashville, they placed yellow roses at the feet of the suffrage monument, and here in Knoxville, they did the same. These were the feet of the women who won the vote for all women, and they were being thanked. And that was very emotional for me. What happened here in the summer of 1920, your story, your heritage, carries both historic and powerful contemporary meaning. There are important lessons to be learned from this history of the fight for women's suffrage. That social change is slow and political change is hard. That reform movements are imperfect. The women's suffrage movement was both an inspiring and a cautionary tale. It's complicated. It's messy. There are moral compromises made. They leave the black sisters behind. And we have to learn from those mistakes. I hope the story I tell in the Women's Hour, which is not a depressing story, it's, it's kind of a rollicking story. There's just great characters and a lot of drama. But I hope it'll teach a new generation of activists as they arise that protest is patriotic. The suffragists proved that. And it's necessary. But it must be followed up by well-designed and sustained political strategies. The suffs did not just march and picket. They also debated they lobbied, they initiated legislation, and they campaigned. That's how they won it. The vote is a prayer, as Carrie Catt described it. The vote is power. And today, our job is to protect that vote for all citizens. And it's our sacred duty to use that vote, even in local elections, to improve our democracy. And that's what the suffragists can teach us. And I hope you'll enjoy reading about them. Thank you.
1: give you in a second but I want to put the plug in for the Byrne Memorial so we're going to honor uh, Harry and Feb Byrne mother and son and this uh, our local suffrage coalition have been working for some time on this so you want to get your name on a brick or you may want to get your uh, name engraved on the base of the statue. I mean, after tonight, I, I think we should sell a lot of bricks and a lot of engravings because you want to be a part of this history. So you can uh, search for it online. I think Knoxville Suffrage Coalition. You can bring, it'll come up, and you'll see how to uh, buy this. What's the deadline for contributing? May one. May first. So the. Actual uh, ribbon cutting for the memorial is June, then a Saturday, June the 9th, but I think three- Parade and all. Parade and all, we're gonna do it up big. Oh, it's gonna be right outside behind this building. Right. Elaine, on behalf of the friends of the Knox County Public Library, we uh, want to present this gift to you. you. We want you to open it so you can see what it is. And the others can see. It is
2: a red ribbon, but it's okay. (laughs) I know. know. Oh, frame. Okay. Oh, wow. This, this. Thank you. Your own. Yeah. Yeah. Thank Thank you you to all the
1: to the friends. Thank you so much. Very special.
0: Thank you. So glad.
2: Thank you for listening to a podcast of Knox County Public Library. To hear other episodes, please visit our website at knoxlib.org. That's
0: K-N-O-X-L-I-B dot O-R-G.